Welcome to the Gray Zone. It's Max Blumenthal. Protests inside Iran triggered by the death of Masa Amini, a young woman who was picked up by Iran's morality police on the grounds of supposed indecent exposure, have drawn massive international attention. Media around the world are following these protests. And on social media, the hashtag surrounding Masa Amini's name has generated more attention and retweets than almost any hashtag in Twitter history. So how much of this international response is authentic? And how much of it is related to genuine concern for Iranian women and not the longstanding Western desire for regime change in Tehran? To better understand this issue, I spoke to a woman inside Iran. Her name is Sitara Sadegi. She is an independent researcher, a translator, a teacher, and a PhD. She lives in the city of Esfahan. Satara Sadegi, let's talk about you and your own political views before we get into some of the details of these protests and the campaign behind them. Um, you studied the U.S. civil rights movement as part of your PhD, and you are also a student of propaganda. Um, but where do you situate yourself within the Iranian political spectrum? And specifically, do you support women protesting the morality police um, and issues like the hijab? Well, yes, as you mentioned, I uh, finished my PhD in American studies and I studied propaganda analysis as part of my PhD dissertation uh, and the rhetoric of social uh, movements as well. Uh, so I have always been supportive of uh, the Iranian uh, government as the whole, like the notion of an Islamic Republic. But I have also been uh, critical towards a lot of the things that happen in my country, like uh, many of the other people who live here. So um, and for the issue of hijab, as someone who believes in hijab and has always practice it. Uh, I am totally against the morality police. Uh, it's, by the way, in Farsi, the word that we use for it is uh, the guidance patrol. And, uh, but in English, it's usually referred to as a morality police. And I'm totally against it. And um, I have been a part of uh, the people who, especially women, who un uh, took it uh, online and used hashtags to talk about uh, how they do not believe in the morality police, even though they believe in hijab. Uh, and this is not something new. It has been put in place uh, from many years ago, uh, but it become more significant uh, this year. Uh, so even before the, these protests uh, and before uh, the th tragic death of Masa Amini, people were talking about it online. And I was also one of them uh, because I thought this was uh, totally unacceptable. And even in, in my personal life, because I have people, I have friends who do not believe uh, uh, in the hijab and they don't want to practice it or they practice it in a way that did not fit the standards of the Islamic Republic's law uh, of the dress code. And they were stopped by the morality police. And in at least uh, three cases that I remember, I would uh, just go and talk to the morality police and tell them as someone who believes in hijab, I am totally against what they're doing. And this is not the way they should have. Uh, enforce the law um, because you know it's not always that they, the morality police doesn't always arrest people 
their main job was to go and tell people. But even that, uh, I don't, I, I'm totally against it. And I don't think that's something that works. Um, mainly because a lot of people who live here uh, and believe in some sort of dress code. Uh, and I'm, and I think as a woman, I think uh, that's a, something that people should tell us. Um, like, I mean, I believe in law and order, but also uh, I don't, I, I don't like uh, being told with like uh, those details, like how to dress and how to appear in public. So what is the, the role of the morality police and how much public opposition is there uh, to this unit of the security services? And are they known for being as brutal as they're currently being portrayed as? Uh, well, yes, they are known as being um, brutal because uh, Iranian women don't find it acceptable, not necessarily because uh, like everything that they do is brutal, but but some uh, harsh treatments are uh, an integral part of the way they enforce the hijab law. Um, but it's also that um, I mean, while I I think a lot of people uh, are against the morality police, it's not that everyone is against the mandatory hijab law. So these are two things that should be studied differently. Uh, like a lot of people, um, I mean, it's uh, uh, there, there are different surveys and uh, different surveys in different provinces show uh, a different percentage of people um, believing in uh, obligatory or mandatory hijab. Uh, and I think that's something that has to be dealt with uh, based on the local culture of each province. And that is also reflective of how the protests are going on. For example, in my hometown, because it's considered more conservative and more traditional, the protests are very um, much smaller than what, what you could see in other cities, uh, for example, in Tehran or Rasht or um, other cities where the protests were uh, like significant compared to what is going on in my town. Um, so, yeah, and and there are also people who believe that the morality police should be in place, but the the methods that are they're using should be different. So if you, if you want to categorize uh, women and people who live in Iran inside Iran, uh, we have people who are totally against the mandatory hijab. They don't believe in hijab at all, and obviously they don't believe in morality police. We have people who believe in hijab, uh, but they don't believe in the morality police or the mandatory hijab. We have people who believe in hijab and they believe in the morality police, but they don't believe in the methods that they are used. Uh, and that uh, also creates a collective of people who are against the morality police. But uh, again, based on um, how they feel towards it, um, their participation in these protests are different. So, Let's talk about the issue of Masa Amini. What, what do we know about her death? Um, most people in the West who are following this believe she was beaten to death by the morality police in police custody. Has that been established as the case? And is that the understanding even of the protesters in Iran? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, even the a lot of those Western media outlets uh, corrected their like headlines or started using different terms. 
um, referring to the case when the CCTV uh, footage of uh, the moment when Mahsa Amini fell and went into a coma uh, was published. So a lot of people uh, believed that footage about how uh, some people said that she had bruises on her legs when she was taken to hospital, which shows that there was beating. Uh, but the footage, uh, I mean, clearly shows that she was in good health conditions when she was there. I mean, based on what we see. Uh, and an investigation has been uh, ordered. Um, the files are not yet uh, published. I mean, there are talks about it, but there is not a um, like a final statement uh, by the state as um, the final, the, the last thing that they have said is that um, the probe shows that there was no beating involved. They even released the CT scans of her brain uh, and the, um, and as I said, there was a CCTV footage. Um, so a lot of protesters, while there are protesters who believe that the beating happened, there are also a lot of protesters who think that it did not happen. But the fact that a young girl died in police custody only because of violating the dress code is something unacceptable, no matter what exactly happened in police custody. Um, you're, you're in Esfahan, which is a large city in Iran, outside of Tehran. Most of the protests, as far as we know, have been centered in the capital of Tehran. And you have been receiving a wave of death threats for reporting that the protests in your city were very small and that the protests have not spread to key Iranian cities. Is that still the case? Well, um, I mean, because I have already uh, blocked a lot of people and uh, because the people, the person who started those threats uh, is someone uh, who knew me in person. Uh, at this point, I can say that I haven't received any new threats, but it was because I appear on different media and I have talked about Iran as a political an analyst and I have always received insulting or sometimes death threat, but this time it was really unprecedented as it was started by someone who knew me in person and had uh, my personal information and even the number of the people who attacked me was like really huge and it started with the uh, independence uh, farsi account on instagram um, publishing a snippet of my interview and disregarding all the criticism that i had uh, against the morality please the crackdown on everything and just uh, saying that i lied about the number of the people uh, participating in the protest or the fact that uh, uh, that these protests are much smaller than the ones that we witnessed, for example, in Esfahan in 2019. Uh, but um, at the same time, there were a lot of people who were totally against even the Islamic Republic, but uh, mentioned that and said, I mean, they verified it and they said that they were part of uh, the protests. And that's true. It was not um, significant because, as I said, Esfahan is a conservative, even more traditional city. And um, they people take to the streets on different uh, issues. Like um, the morality police is, I guess, not number one issue for people who live here. And I talk to my friends who don't uh, observe uh, the hijab like completely or according to the law, and they said that this is really not uh, their number one uh, issue, and so they don't want to be the part of a protest.
Right. I mean, we've seen large protests over the price of food or economic issues in Iran that were totally ignored in Western media. So what do you make of the response in Western media, not just Western broadcast media, but social media as well? The Masa Amini hashtag is one of the most popular hashtags in history. As you tweeted, it's as if there are no other issues in the entire world. Uh, do you think the exactly. outrage that we've seen on social media is authentic or something that is being encouraged or pushed by Western, specifically NATO states, the same way that there was a massive social media amplification campaign around the so-called Arab Spring? Yeah, yeah that's True. I mean, social media has never been a true reflection of what's happening in uh, different societies, especially not Iranian society, because uh, Twitter is blocked here and a lot of people do not have access to it. So um, and the number of the users, uh, the Iranian users on Twitter is not significant. Uh, because they use other, for example, Instagram uh, before these protests, Instagram was not blocked and uh, a very large proportion of the population had Instagram accounts, especially that because they also used it for selling products and they had their business, especially a lot, a lot of women uh, run ran their own business Instagram. Uh, but uh, Twitter is like very different and it's something that is known by Iranians, uh, even like those who, who are on Twitter, they know that it's very different from the realities on the ground. And, and it's surprising how when um, there was especially in, uh, in those towns where the protests were met the practice uh, on the was really severe and a lot of people couldn't even use the uh, two hashtags uh, broke a record which is uh, like it tells that there is something um, there uh, that doesn't come from in, in Iran uh, and you know the, there is um, I mean, we, there is a history of uh, like fake hashtags and fake accounts and trolls uh, on Twitter trying to uh, portray Iran in a different uh, way. And, and it's not only about a protest. Uh, there are other cases. For example, um, I like there was a time when if you posted anything positive about your or life uh, in Iran, you would be attacked by these trolls because they said that uh, you are normalizing uh, Iranian people's misery, like as if there is no normal life in Iran. And the only thing that you are allowed to post online about Iran is just uh, uh, like, you know, the problems and the grievances. Uh, they started and uh, they, they attacked a university professor for only posting um, uh, pictures of him inside a cafe in Tehran, for example. So this is, and we also have the case of Hishmat Alavi, uh, who is a, apparently a user, uh, a Twitter user who posts about the, against the Islamic Republic on uh, Twitter. And um, uh, it's interesting that when Trump uh, withdrew from uh, the J JCPOA, uh, he said, like one of the reasons he mentioned that the JCPOA is, is uh, uh, facilitating Iran's uh, like crackdown on its on its people or uh, on certain issues, 
and uh, two Washington Post journalists ask for a source, and the source that the Trump uh, like reply, offered was uh, an article written by Hishbat Alabi, and an MEK de facto later uh, also talked about how the camp in Albania, the the MEK uh, camp in Albania, uh, like uses its uh, members to um, like start hashtags and uh, make them a trend and like they're paid to um, post about it. And, uh, and for recent... those who don't know, just just uh, quickly for those who don't know, the MEK is the Mojahedin al Kalk, which is a U.S. and Saudi-backed opposition movement dedicated explicitly to regime change in Iran and replacing it with its cult-like leader, Maryam Rajavi. Uh, they have been based in Albania under the watch of the U.S. military and U.S. intelligence, and it's there that they maintain a troll farm, as you said, to spin out uh, hashtags against the government in Iran. And this account, Heshmat Alavi, apparently was a sock puppet run out of this troll farm. Yeah, that's what the investigation shows. And even for the recent hashtag, uh, like a historical uh, hashtag trends of the uh, like about Masa Amini, um, like a few Iranian users track them and try to find out where those hashtags come from. And then you see a lot of uh, users uh, just posting like just nonsense, just a few uh, like alphabets and then using the hashtags. Uh, and and uh, like right now, I think it's surpassed uh, 100 million times the, ha the hashtags worse in Farsi and in English. Uh, and they come from uh, a limited number of users like uh, around uh, it's I think it's less than 300,000 users that have been uh, using the hashtags, but it's already have, uh, I mean, it's already um, the historical trend on Twitter. Uh, and, you know, it's it's interesting how, like, as you said, the protest in 2019, uh, because that, like, at that time, uh, they were also, like, really huge in my neighborhood and in Esfahan. Uh, I did not see any, uh, reflection of it online because uh, usually like that 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 protest was more uh, uh, by the working class and the middle class because it it, it had uh, economic uh, you know causes uh, and it affected a larger proportion of the population uh, and it's so naturally it was bigger but you wouldn't hear about it 24/7 uh, on mainstream media or on social media and but this time, um, I mean, it's a social issue and it's a very important issue for women. Uh, but at the same time, it's not really uh, as big as it, as uh, the previous protests that we had. But we already have a historical uh, like record of um, hashtags for it. So, I mean, it's it's it totally shows that it's not reflective of what is actually going on in Iran. Well. The New York Times is also reporting that the U.S. State Department and its allies are trying to get communication gear into Iran. However, much of the noise about these protests appears to be coming from the outside. And it's because of an issue that Westerners can relate to, we are deluged with identity politics here and we don't have large economic protests here in the United States uh, anymore outside of maybe some union activity, some strikes. 
Um, this is uh, a case of the weaponization of identity. And obviously a real issue, as you point out, a real issue with the morality police. Maybe not at the top of the agenda, but something that upsets a section of the population in Iran. But outside, much of the noise is being made by Iranian exiles or, or, or expats. And one of the key voices who's emerged in U.S. media, cable news media, is a figure named Masi Alinejad, Ali who I'm sure you know. She's been backed by the U.S. Yeah. government, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in contracts with the Voice of America, which is the U.S. government's global broadcasting system. She's met with former CIA director and secretary of state Mike Pompeo. Uh, recently, she cooked up a phony plot in coordination with the U.S. government and the FBI, claiming that the Venezuelan security services were going to kidnap her and take her on speedboats to Iran. It was one of the most ridiculous plots I've ever heard, and it was widely reported in U.S. media. Now she's back. So what do you make of Iranian expats kind of taking the mic and becoming the voice of the Iranian public? Well, I wouldn't mind. I mean, I uh, obviously Iranian women would be very happy if uh, those in exile really wanted to be a voice uh, for women inside. But uh, the thing is, uh, they are just echoing the voice of, uh, um, like I would say, a minority and uh, just a section of the population in Iran that they agree with. Uh, I mean, they, I think they, they also um, believe in the uh, Western liberal notion of uh, Iran, like freedom for women and not the notion they, they don't really care. I'm not talking about everyone, obviously, but some of these people who are who are given a voice and whose voices are amplified over the voices of women inside Iran, they're just repeating um, the Western notion of freedom for women. And they do not understand that if women in women in Iran can have a different notion of freedom and they have uh, like uh, other priorities when it comes to women's rights and women uh, activism. And a lot of women here are working uh, towards uh, that. They are organizing, they are uh, using uh, online campaigns to pursue um, Iranian women's rights. But these voices from outside really make our struggle more difficult. Uh, and instead of, for example, calling for the US government or EU to lift the sanctions on Iran that are hurting ordinary Iranian people, and making it more difficult for women to find, for example, job opportunities or uh, to just uh, be active, uh, uh, an active part of the society. Uh, they are calling for their own notion, like uh, they're calling for something that they believe would be liberating for Iranian women. But that's not the case. That, that's not necessarily the case for the majority of Iranian women. And, you know, um, I personally find it uh, like, a, kind of insulting because it it is like you are you are disregarding and discrediting Iranian women we have we are like Iranian women inside Iran are very powerful a, a large proportion of Iranian women uh, or, or the majority of Iranian women actually it's a high percentage go to colleges and they're they're highly educated uh, they we have women in business we have women in medicine and uh, universities and Women are a very active part of the society. 
So they know how to pursue reforms. For example, uh, there is this case uh, you can see online that the, there is um, like civil disobedience happening uh, inside Iran without any hashtags or calls from outside. And it is helping women here, for example, in my town, uh, riding a bicycle for women was not like by law, it was not forbidden. But culturally, there were a group of um, like extra conservative religious people in Esfahan who were against riding bicycles and the, for women. And they were calling for that to happen. Like they were saying that we're not going to allow that. Women did not take to, the, to Twitter to talk about it. They did not, uh, you know, make a fuss about it and start uh, like um, running protests. What they did instead was that a lot of women, um, many of them in like full hijab and full covering, uh, started riding their bicycles through the city. And now it has become an absolute normal scene in my city. And they can't, I mean, those conservative groups cannot oppose it anymore. This is how civil disobedience and uh, like pursuing reform works because a lot of the things that we see, for example, the government is, uh, um, is actually imposing or uh, implementing comes from the fact that there is a large proportion of the population that believes in those things. So we need education and we need, uh, uh, it's a progress, it's a, uh, it's a process of reforming and educating women and educating men uh, about women's rights. It doesn't happen by uh, like a hashtag revolution and just taking to the streets. And then, you know, it's very easy for these protests to uh, get violent and there are people who abuse it. It starts with, uh, 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 slogans uh, for women's rights, but it ends up with the slogans against establishment and uh, like uh, calling for the overthrowing of the establishment. So a lot of women don't want to be a part of that simply because they see how this is hijacked, how this is uh, exaggerated by Western media and the social media as well. And, it, and so they see the realities and they see those reflection and they don't want to be a part of it. Uh, but they do their job for um, seeking reform and educating uh, their family members and being an active part of, uh, you know, this process of bringing change to their society. So uh, aside from the Iranian expats who were getting a lot of attention and speaking out on behalf of all Iranians, you have major celebrities sharing the Masa Amini hashtag. What do you make of the participation of celebrities, Hollywood stars and recording artists, and how much do they really know about the situation inside Iran? Are they getting anything wrong? Uh, well, while I hope uh, a lot of them have the good intention of supporting Iranian women, uh, and it's only out of ignorance, not that they have been paid or supported by the US government to do that, uh, I think it's very hypocritical because they didn't talk about how, uh, for example, sanctions have been hurting Iranian uh, people and Iranian women and taking opportunities away from them. For example, as an academic, uh, m uh, like a lot of my colleagues have experienced that their uh, papers, their academic publications are not even considered only because they come from Iran. Uh, that's also a form of injustice. Or I mean, that's if that affects only the academia in Iran, but sanctions affect ordinary people. It has uh, like we have a they were really. Uh, 
like affecting ordinary Iranians and making and making it uh, impossible for, for example, uh, people with cancer to provide um, their medicines to find their medicines. And a lot of uh, medical companies refuse to sell Iran uh, medicine, citing U.S. sanctions because, you know, they're also, uh, I mean. There are a lot of European companies who just do not want to stand uh, against the U.S. pressure to um, abide by these sanctions, so they just refuse to sell medicine. It's not always uh, like directly from the medicine, the, the uh, like those companies. It's also because of the international sanctions uh, on. Uh, like Iranian banks uh, that may make it impossible for Iran to buy those medicines. So there are a lot of factors um, involved, but making it impossible. So I personally, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people find it really hypocritical. Well, you mentioned uh, some violence taking place. We've seen uh, police officers be killed and a number of deaths, as well as uh, what appears to be armed clashes on the Iranian-Iraqi border. Um, how are, are these protests turning violent and are they being infiltrated by violent elements who actually have very little interest in women's rights? Yes, that's that's unfortunately the case. Um, like women, Iranian women rightfully wanted to protest and take to the streets and make a statement um to the state and which i think they have already made it uh but there were elements uh who infiltrated it and started violent uh, uh like attacks on uh, public uh, property on even on people's property like they burned people's cars uh they were shootings and a lot of people have died in these protests many of them who were women and you know it's uh, not everyone died because of police shooting or police crackdown a lot of those people died because of the thugs and mobs that were involved in these protests and obviously like you said they don't care about women's rights they have other uh, you know they have other um, agenda to follow uh, and this is also another reason like a lot of women who maybe initially were protesting took online to say to talk about that that uh, this is absolutely not uh, what women want and it's not uh, supporting women's right. But there were also, like I said, peaceful protests going on and they didn't receive crackdowns, obviously, because they weren't uh, as violent uh, in uh, universities and in uh, different, uh, like on different streets where people just were peacefully protesting without burning things down. Uh, but with those infiltration, it became very uh, difficult to keep them um, peaceful. And also you asked me about the Kurdish environment, yeah. right? I mean, Masa Amini was Kurdish and many of the protests have taken place in Kurdish areas, if I'm not incorrect. Um, so how is the Kurdish is issue influencing these protests? Yeah, um, well, it appears that one of uh, Masamini's cousin was a member of uh, the one of these Kurdish separatist uh, movement, which have also carried out terrorist acts. Uh, but obviously, she had nothing to do with these people. But uh, this cousin abused, like, or exploited uh, his relation 
uh, with Masa Amini to say that this was uh, to portray it as an ethnic issue. Uh, but uh, Masa's family, including uh, her uncle, spoke out and said that this has nothing to do with our ethnicity. We are Kurdish, but this is about Iran and the uh, women's right. It has nothing to do with our ethnicity. This is this involves everyone. Uh, but uh, different leaders of Kurdish movements inside Iran and outside, like the, the ones in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan as well, uh, started saying uh, that uh, they were planning for the protests and they called for people to uh, take to the streets. And even the slogan that has become popular for this movement, which uh, is uh, translated into um, women, uh, life and liberty, that's a popular Kurdish slogan. Uh, and it's beautiful and people relate to it, but uh, even the slogan was um, like, it came from this uh, Kurdish, uh, um, like ethnic groups that were involved. And by now, uh, like one of one of the cities at the border uh, witnessed attacks on police stations by these uh, some of these Kurdish elements. And uh, Iran started uh, because they were funded and armed from outside Iran, from Iraqi Kurdistan. Iran also started attacking uh, their bases in Iraq. And um, just recently, just yesterday, a lot of people, uh, at least I think about 11 people, died in these attacks. But the IRGC has made it clear that they won't stop until they just back down. And I think it's also important to know that um, like I have Kurdish um, family members and they do not see themselves a part of it at all. So it's not about the ethnicity, it's about a group funded by uh, outside sources wanted to like exploit uh, these protests and wreck um, a on Iran and the society. Well, those Kurdish separatists on the Iranian, the Iraqi side of the border are part of the Barzani clan, right? Which has been historically backed by the U.S. and armed by the U.S. Yeah, and Mossad at some time. Yeah, that's and true. the Israeli mm -hmm. Mossad. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why and uh, and Iranian people have a really bitter memory of their activities in Iran. They have killed a lot of people, uh, even in the, within the uh, Kurdish uh, like regions. So, uh, and they have been given platform by, for example, BBC Persian and other uh, propaganda by uh, the British government and the U.S. government, uh, which. Uh, again, doesn't resonate with what's going on uh, in Iran and makes a lot of Iranians angry because it's really not about ethnicity at all. I mean, their family, Mahsa Amini's family made it very clear that they consider themselves Iranian before anything, and it's really not about ethnicity. But these people are totally disregarding that. They're not, they, they don't care about hair uh, case or the case of women. They're just exploiting it to uh, create chaos inside Iran and, um, uh, you know, make it very difficult for um, Iranian people to take part in those protests because they can be easily exploited. And, and we saw very rather small protests in Cuba in 2021, backed by the U.S., staged by people who'd been involved in U.S. embassy programs. Be 
exploited by the Biden administration to justify not returning to the normalization deal that the Obama administration had hashed out with the Cuban government. Do you think these protests will have a similar effect and will provide the Biden administration with justification for not returning to the JCPOA Iran deal that the Obama administration and Iranian government agreed to? Absolutely. And not, not only that, I think it gives more justification for the U.S. government to impose even more sanctions on Iranian people, which, as I said, and it has been like the U.N. also acknowledges it, that the unilateral coercive measures by the United States are hurting ordinary people in Iran, especially women. I mean, they're taking a lot of opportunities away from women. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's why as I like this is one uh, another reason for me, for example, and a lot of people in Iran and a lot of women inside Iran uh, that uh, these protests are going to lead to if, if these protests are going to lead uh, to more sanctions, which seems to be the case already, uh, they don't want to be a part of it. And, and do you think that these protests and the attendant violence could prove destabilizing to Iran's internal security or expand in any way? Um, well, by now, the protests are um, like almost finished and everyone is talking about how there are no longer like massive protests and even on uh, outlets like uh, the, especially Persian speaking uh, TVs, for example, like BBC or Manoto or BOA Persian, uh, they tried hard to say that the protests are still going on. And I see I was checking the hashtags today and there are still millions of hashtags for uh, what's going on in Iran. But if you go to, on the streets and uh, just walk around, e even Tehran by now, there's really um, nothing significant happening. I mean, in Esfahan, it's almost uh, over. It's very insignificant. And that's something that you will hear from a lot of people who live here. And actually, like, uh, there's, I mean, in certain neighborhoods, uh, if you walk, you would never see anything. I had a like a friend of my friend was saying that like if a tourist comes to Iran at this time and they go and for example they walk around Esfahan they will believe that uh, uh, whatever they heard on social media or mainstream media was absolutely uh, fake like that's how normal life is just going on in Iran and things are uh, gradually back going back to normal even the internet crackdown eased uh, today, and that's why I've been able to do this interview. Well, looks like the at this point, the medium is the message. Satare Sadehi, thanks so much for joining us at the Gray Zone and keeping us informed. Thank you for having me and giving me a platform as someone who lives in Iran to have a voice.